Well, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9. Our passage today will be verses 14 through 29. If you're new to Redeeming Grace, if maybe this is a, maybe you're visiting family or maybe you're just here for the first time, uh, it's typically our pattern to preach through books of the Bible. And so we've been working our way through the book of Romans for some time. Romans is like a mine filled with all kinds of treasures. And the best way I can explain it to you today, especially if you're new, and even for you folks that are here regularly, is we're like in the deepest part of the mine today, okay? Like Romans 9 is about as far and as deep as you can get in this mine. But listen, there, there's fantastic treasure here if you'll just hang on, all right? Uh, it's worth the trip to the depths of the mine to find the glorious riches that we have in the amazing grace and mercy of God that's demonstrated here for us in Romans 9. So we're in deep water today. Uh, just know that. And, uh, but it's good. It's good stuff. So let's pray and ask now for the Lord's help as we consider his word. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself through your word. Father, it's our desire that we would see you for who you truly are today. And Lord, as we consider your word, that we would be not only instructed in our minds, but Father, that we would be affected and transformed in our hearts. So Lord, would you come and do that today? For our good and your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a commonly held belief all the way through the 16th century that the earth was the center of the universe. It was Ptolemy of Alexandria in 140 AD that made this view popular. That the earth, that everything around the earth revolved around the earth, that the earth was central. And so for 15, almost 16 centuries, this was the predominant understanding and worldview. That the earth was the center and everything, sun, moon, and stars revolved around the earth. But in the 16th century, a Polish astronomer by the name of Nicholas Copernicus came along and challenged this view. Copernicus, through his own research, concluded that the reason the stars and the sun and the moon seemed to be orbiting the earth was actually because the earth was rotating. The apparent movement of the heavens was simply an illusion when in fact the earth was moving by rotating on an axis every 24 hours. This conclusion led to the finding that instead of the earth being the center of the universe, it was actually the sun that was the center because everything revolved around the sun, not the earth. And therefore, the term, the Copernican Revolution, was coined to recognize this new understanding of the cosmos, of the heavens, and all that. In fact, Copernicus, he was a churchman, and his books were banned even by the church because this was such a revolutionary understanding uh, that how could this be? Because the Bible somehow teaches that the earth is the center of the universe, not the sun. And so this was a, this was a big deal, not so much of a big deal today, but it was a big deal back then. Well, for many, Romans 9 is a Copernican revolution kind of passage. It presents us with a sobering and humbling reality that often we push against in a lot of our conclusions about God and his salvation. 
And the reason that when we hear this passage that we want to kind of buck against it a bit is because we think, and we've been trained to think, that man is central to everything. We have, we're just kind of born into this man-centered idea and understanding of life. But when you read Romans chapter 9, very quickly you realize that man is not the center of life. God is the center of life. God is the center. He is the very one through which all things revolve around, we could say. And so in that way, Romans 9 is a Copernican revolution kind of passage. Radically God-centered. But really, friends, Romans 9 is not the only place that you see the God-centeredness of God. It's really found throughout the entirety of Scripture, isn't it? The Bible teaches that quite well. Two weeks ago, we began this chapter by looking at verses 1 through 13. And Paul unfolds a dilemma here that burdens him. The dilemma was that the majority of the Jewish people had rejected the Messiah. The majority of his own kindred, the Jewish people, vast majority of them, had rejected Jesus as the Messiah and were lost. And yet, how could this be with all of the religious privileges that they had? They had the prophets, they had the law, they had the promises, they had the covenants. All of these things, he says in verses 1 through 5, especially in verses 4 and 5, and yet the vast majority of them had rejected Jesus as God's promised Savior. And that burdened Paul. It grieved him. He was, you see in verses 1 through 5, of his sorrow, his great sorrow and his unceasing anguish. How he wished he could himself be accursed, cut off from Christ so that his kindred could be saved. How could this be? But as perplexing and difficult as this was for Paul, he concluded that it wasn't though that the, God, that the word of God had failed. You see that in verse 6. Despite all that I see, despite the fact that the vast majority of my Jewish kindred have rejected the gospel, despite all of that, it's not as though God's word has somehow failed. And he gives a defense of that. He says the reason God's word has not failed, the reason is grounded in the divine promise and divine election. So that's what we looked at two weeks ago. But, when you think about that, what Paul is saying is that, listen, even though the vast majority presently have rejected the gospel, God's word hasn't failed because God has always had a people. The reason he's always had a people is because, he, because of his divine promise and because of his divine election. Now, as Paul so often does, he anticipates pushback. He's gifted in this way. You see that in his writings many times. He'll say something, then he anticipates, either through the experiences that he had as he taught these things, or as he's thinking through it logically himself, he anticipates objections. And so that's exactly what he does here. He anticipates some pushback to his conclusion because he's, he's basically saying, if salvation is a matter that flows from God's sovereign choice and not based upon anything in man, then how, how can it be that God be righteous? How can he blame those 
who reject him if somehow God is sovereign over their salvation. Now, many times, friends, we think about salvation, we're, we're typically thinking about it from, through a human perspective, aren't we? We, we talk about the, the, the doctrine of God's grace. We talk about how God has given us Christ and how Christ has come to die for our sins and how if we will simply repent of our sins and put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. And that is the glorious good news of the gospel. If you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, you've not turned from your sin, you've not trusted by faith in Christ, we would implore you to do that today because that is your hope. That is the only way your sins will be forgiven. That is the only way that you'll be an adopted child of God is by forsaking your sin and putting your hope and trust in Christ. What we have here in Romans 9 is, while those things are certainly true, and we will continue to see the reality of faith and the role that it plays into chapter 10, what we have here is is the curtains are pulled back a bit so that we can see into the perspective of God's divine, sovereign work when it comes to his salvation. So here, as we set this up, Paul's concern is most of the Jewish people aren't saved, and it burdens him. But he concludes, it's not though as God's word has failed, God has always had a remnant. He's always had a people. And, the, and, and that is the case then, in his, in his day and time, and it's the case today, because God is faithful to his promise and God is sovereignly working through divine election. But then the objection, well, how can that be fair? That's the sermon today. How can that be fair? That's what we're gonna look at beginning now in verse 14. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. What shall we say then? So here's Paul pushing as he's anticipating the pushback, the objection. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom 
and become like Gomorrah. So here we have Paul's conclusion to this potential objection. The main point that we're making here today is this. God is righteous in his divine promise and divine election because he is the sovereign creator of the universe, period. God is righteous in his sovereign work because he is the sovereign creator of the universe. Now, what we're going to do today in our time that we have together is we're going to unpack four truths about God from these verses that prove him to be just in his work, particularly in salvation. Four truths about God that proves him to be just in light of these deep and mysterious truths. First truth is, that we see here this morning about God is, is, is God's mercy. God's mercy. You see that particularly in verses 14 through 16, where Paul says, so, so is God unjust? Is there injustice with God? I mean, just think about the logic he's chasing here. He just says he's burdened over the fact that most of his Jewish brothers and sisters are lost. And then he concludes, but it's not as though God's word had failed because God makes promises and he makes choices. And then the, the objection is, well, if God is the one that's sovereign over choices and, and future, decision, or future realities, then how can that be just? How can he be just to extend mercy in some cases and withhold it in other cases? Well, he begins to defend this. He, he says, so is God unjust? By no means. And then Paul explains why God is not unjust. And he begins with a quote. He quotes a lot of Old Testament here. He begins with a quote from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. That's the quote that you see here in Romans 9, verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This quote is from Exodus 33, and the context of that chapter in Exodus is the context of when Moses was up on the mountain and he came down to see the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. Remember that? Moses comes down and he confronts Aaron. And he's like, what's going on? And Aaron says to Moses, they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. Moses was taking a little longer than they wanted. They were getting impatient. So Mo Aaron says to Moses, they, the people, said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. We don't know what became of Moses. So I said to them, give me your gold. And they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. It's ridiculous, isn't it? That's exactly what happened. They created this golden calf and they were now engaged in full-blown idolatry. One biblical scholar said that this was the equivalent to having an affair on your honeymoon. This is exactly what we see here. God's people who had been miraculously delivered from Egypt was now engaged in full-blown idolatry, worshiping yet another God. Israel's action was downright evil. And God sees their idolatry and is ready to wipe them out. But Moses intercedes. He prays. And God, we're told, he relents of his anger towards his people. And though some 3,000 were killed, the rest of Israel was spared. And so Moses asks the Lord, and in the midst of all that, he's, he's, he's after he's prayed and after God has withheld his full judgment against the people for their idolatry, 
It's as if Moses is asking for the Lord's reassurance of his presence with them after all of this had happened, to which God responds, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. This account from Exodus makes clear that all of Israel had committed idolatry and deserved to be destroyed, yet God restrained his judgment upon the nation. Paul's point simply as he uses this illustration from Exodus 33 is to say this, when considering God's election, we shouldn't be troubled that he withholds mercy from some. Think about the 3,000 that perished. Instead, we should be amazed that he extends mercy to anyone. You see, sometimes we get this idea of God choosing some and not others. We think it sounds unfair. How can it be fair that God will give some mercy and not others? That, that's unfair. But it's as if we've forgotten Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, where all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is not dealing with a humanity that is morally neutral or innocent. We all are guilty. We all are sinners and have fallen short of God's glory. And the fact that God pardons anyone is simply a testimony to his mercy and his grace. Paul's conclusion then is seen in verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What, what, so it, what's it? Well, it's the giving of mercy we see in verse 15. So the giving of mercy then depends, it's not as if God says, okay, I'm going to give mercy to those who have their act together and by some act of human will look to me. I'm just waiting to see who's going to, to respond to me in their own freedom, in their own will, self-determining faith, and that's the person I'm going to give mercy. That's not at all how salvation works. He doesn't grant mercy to those who have faith. He grants mercy so that some can have faith. And that is a critical distinction that oftentimes we overlook. Listen, friends, here's the reality that I think helps put things, things in perspective when we struggle with doctrines like this. Because a lot of times people will say, well, you mean to tell me that there'll be some in hell that really wanted to go to heaven, but God just said no? No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Listen, everyone who will be in hell will deserve to be there. Get, get this, everyone who who's in hell, will deserve to be there. But everyone who's in heaven will not deserve to be there. If God was to extend his full justice apart from grace, then all of us would deserve his judgment. But yet he extends mercy and compassion to whom he will. I told you before, I think growing up in, in my hometown, there was this business that had this sign, and I know that they meant well, but it was it was, uh, my wife will tell you, it often raised my blood pressure when I drive by it. It would say, had three crosses, and it would say, God did all he could do, now the rest is up to you. Because that's blasphemy. There's no part of salvation that is up to you. You don't save yourself. God does the saving by divine miracle in your heart and life, whereby he gives you sight, he opens the eyes of the blind, and he raises the dead so that you can breathe and have faith to the glory of God. So why? 
So we see that God is a God who extends mercy. We're going to see in just a moment that that mercy is not restrictive. It goes far and wide. But why does he do it this way? That's, that's often where we're struggling. Is, okay, I, I, I told you a couple of weeks ago when we entered Romans 9, Romans, the difficulty with Romans 9 is not its clarity. It's quite clear in what it says. It's, it's, it's the acceptability of what's being taught here. That's what makes it hard because it pushes against this, this tendency to be man-centered in our understanding of how God works. Point number two, God's purpose. Why does God do it this way? Again, Paul turns to Scripture for his answer, this time to Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, where God tells Pharaoh why he made him and why he hardened his heart. So after he says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now think about it. Think about the Exodus. Remember, God's people, Israel, were in Egypt, enslaved. Things were getting, going from bad to worse for them. And God raises up Moses. The miraculous story we have in Moses. And God raises up Moses, and now he tells Moses to go and to be the deliverer, humanly speaking, of his people, to be the leader of that. Now think about it. God could have sent a lightning bolt from heaven and taken out Pharaoh and released the people. Could have, right? He could have moved upon Pharaoh's heart in such a way where the first time Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, Pharaoh would have said, okay. But the Prince of Egypt movie would have been boring, right? No, that's not the reason why. Well, sort of. Instead, what we find is that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, which results in a prolonged resistance against Moses and the people of God, and ultimately against God, which in turn results in this dramatic display of God's power and glory through all of those plagues we find in Exodus 5 through 15. And ultimately, a worldwide proclamation of the greatness of God is made known through the means through which God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So Paul's conclusion then is the reason God does this, just look to the example of Pharaoh. He has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills. And again, friends, we can't forget that when God hardens someone, example, Pharaoh, for, for some of us, that's even hard to fathom, that God would harden someone's heart. And I get it. It, 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 it just sounds severe. But one of the things we can't forget when God hardens someone like Pharaoh, it's not as if he's hardening someone that is neutral or innocent. We're told in Exodus that Pharaoh also hardened his heart. We know that, that Pharaoh was involved in hardening his heart against God. And the fact of the matter is, is that no one is morally neutral. All are spiritually dead. Mercy then is given to the undeserving while hardening only secures the state that someone is already in and desires. But here's the amazing reality. Whether through hardening or the giving of mercy, God is glorified. 
even through God's negative action, we could say, of hardening Pharaoh, we see an amazing positive purpose unfold through the deliverance of the people from Egypt. God's sovereign action, whether hardening or extending mercy, is never arbitrary. It always serves a greater purpose. And as Paul looks back to the Exodus example, he uses it to illustrate what God was doing now with Israel. Israel was like a Pharaoh of sorts, we could say. A hardening had come upon Israel. God giving them exactly what they wanted to begin with. A hardening had come upon Israel so that God's power and God's glory, you see that in the text, right? Notice in verse 17, as he's using Pharaoh's illustration, for this very purpose, I raised you up, Pharaoh. Why? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so that the power of God would be displayed and that the glory of God would expand to the ends of the earth. That is why this happens. So a hardening, now Paul's back to Romans 9, a hardening has come upon Israel so that God's power could be displayed and God's glory could be known among the Gentiles. So Paul's getting in now to the reason why this hardening of Israel, the which is the reason why many of them have not responded to the Messiah, why this happens. Notice how Paul, it's amazing, this is, this is a challenging passage. You ought to try to preach it, right? It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging passage, but I think what we see here is you see the burden and the grief and the anguish of Paul in verses 1 through 5, and then it's as if Paul steps back a moment and says, wait a minute, though, God is sovereign in the midst of all of this. And I can see what he's doing because of how God's inspired him and, 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 and given him this revelation. What God is doing is he's working through the hardening of Israel to unfold his saving purposes to the ends of the earth. Anytime God does something, whether it's hardening or extending mercy or anything for that matter, we need to remember that the purpose of God is always found in displaying his power and magnifying his glory. As hard as truths may seem to us, God's purposes are always to magnify his name. Not magnify your name or my name, but his name. Point number three. Again, we're answering the question, why, why is this, why, why, why can God be just in acting this way. We see that he does extend mercy. We see the purpose behind that. Now we're going to see God's freedom. You get to end of verse 18, and, and for many of us, we could even say, just forget the Romans for a minute that we're receiving this letter. Just think about you. For many of us, the question hasn't been resolved. The objection still lingers, and now Paul so the first objection, well, if God chooses some and rejects others, how can he be just? Paul answers. Now we see objection number two. Okay, well, then how can God still find fault? See that there in verse 19? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God is sovereign, if he's the one that's making these divine choices, even regarding individual salvation, 
If this is true, then why does he still find fault? How can he blame someone who rejects him if God is sovereign over accepting them or not? You get the, you get the logic here. That's a question all of us have. I have it. If you think you understand Romans 9 perfectly well, congratulations. I, I have that question. How can God still find fault? How can he hold unbelieving Israel accountable to their unbelief if God is the one who hardened them? Fair question. Now, Paul answers that question, but not in the way you probably think. Paul could have gone to Scripture and pointed out how Pharaoh also hardened his heart, and therefore God just kind of sealed his fate. He gave him what he wanted. He could have said that, and it would have been biblically accurate and true. But that's not the answer Paul gives, is it? You see the answer. You still say to me, verse 19, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul's answer, but who do you think you are? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Paul's basic response is when you think about God's fairness and God's justice and God's mercy and you wonder why he can still find fault, answer, who do you think you are questioning God's character? Basically, Paul says the objection falls flat because who are you to question God's right to run his world? Then he supports this response through a series of rhetorical questions in verse 20 and 21. Who are you to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Now, I don't think that Paul is rebuking those who have honest questions that genuinely desire to know God's ways. What Paul is rebuking here is the attitude that presumes to judge the ways and character of God and come to their own conclusion that God is somehow unjust. God is big enough to take your questions and your concerns and your trying to understand something. He's big enough to take those and he welcomes those kinds of questions. This is the the condescending attitude that one would have on, well, well, God must be unjust to work this way. But Paul doesn't give a logical answer to the tension here of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. He simply stops and said, God is God and he has the sovereign freedom to do as he chooses. I get that that pushes against us. And what that's pushing against is this idea of self-autonomy. We've been fooled to think that we live in a world where we have the right to do what we want. And I've said this before, when we talk about amazing grace, when we talk about the grace of God in our lives, I think the fact that, I think that this is true. To some degree, all of us do not understand the depths of what God's grace truly is. We still think that somehow that, that God is saving us based upon some kind of performance or merit in us, when the fact of the matter is, is that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us. And if we believe in Christ, 
It is a testimony not to our wisdom or effort or merit, but a testimony to God's sovereign grace alone. This is what Paul is saying here. God, when when you begin questioning and throwing accusations against God, you need to stop because you're not God and his throne is not up for grabs. God is not constrained by anything or anyone outside of himself, and he is free to do as he wills. Even if it sounds to us as as something being unjust. Paul's arguing why it's not that way. Paul's saying God is holy, the creation has fallen, and he could have wadded it all up and tossed it all. But he doesn't. He extends mercy. Which leads us to point number four, God's patience. Verses 22 through 29, we see this unfold. Often when people consider the doctrine of election, their objection is how restrictive it seems. The objection is mostly focused on those who seem to be left out versus those who would be included. Friends, election may seem restrictive at first, but it actually stretches far and wide. Remember the promise made to Abraham? Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's promise. Even when Paul's struggling with seeing his own kindred come to Christ, that promise is still true. All the families of the earth will be blessed. A remnant will be saved in Israel. All the families of the world. So we see that this is restrictive, but actually it's expansive, it's inclusive, it involves all nations. And in verse 22, Paul sets up this quite well. We see here that God chooses, look at what verse 22 says, to, to restrain his wrath and anger to those who will be eventually destroyed, like Pharaoh, in order to reveal his glory to those whom he will eventually save, like the Israelites in the Exodus. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, there's his purpose again, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. Endured with much patience is key. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, another purpose, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he quotes Hosea to talk about how God is including a people called not my people to make them my people. He's applying a reality of the Israelites taken away to exile. And he's now applying it to, to, to the Gentiles. It's a little confusing. But basically what he's saying is that when God's people were taken out of the promised land and put into exile, they were basically considered as just like the Gentiles, they were now kind of in a foreign land under foreign rule, and, and they were no different than the Gentiles in that regard. And so he's, he's quoting Hosea to now refer to the Gentiles. I'm going to take a people who are not my people and make them my people. And then verse 27 through 29, where he quotes Isaiah concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. What we see here is God's patience. God is patiently enduring vessels of wrath. Point Paul is making is that he simply doesn't take the the ungodly out immediately. 
He chooses to work slowly, patiently, in order to make known his power, verse 22, and to make known the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy. So again, God's power and God's glory are the purposes through which he's working here. The same way God patiently endured with Pharaoh is the same way he is patiently working then and even now. He's patiently enduring all the sin and all of the corruption and all of the chaos in this sinful broken world so that his full redemption will reach the ends of the earth and bring all his people home. We see that supported with Old Testament passages. The Gentiles are promised redemption and a remnant of the Jews will be saved. So we have here a partial hardening has come upon Israel so that the nations would be gathered in. Friends, God's election is not restrictive. It is massively inclusive. It extends to every nation, every tribe. That has always been the plan and it will always be the plan to the, ends, to the end of the age. You just think recently, a quick word about recent events in Israel. I hear a lot of Christians and a lot of pastors saying a lot of things about the move of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. There's been a lot of chatter about that. And I don't want to say that it's unimportant historically or politically. Very well could be. But we need to make, and here's, here's, here's something I would urge us to, to be careful with, we need to make a distinction between the nation, the modern nation of Israel politically and the people of God spiritually. While it may be politically advantageous to be pro-Israel as an American, I think there's some legitimacy there, as Christians, we need to be pro-Israel and pro-Palestine because God's people comes from both. That's That's what he's saying. God's people come from both. As an American, politically and historically and all of those things, you're thinking one way, but listen, as pro-Israel as we are, the vast majority of them are still, still lost. The vast majority of them still reject Jesus as the Messiah. And so pray for the peace of Israel and Jerusalem, absolutely. Pray for their salvation, that they would come to faith in Christ. Should we reject terrorism? Absolutely. Should we fight against it? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean we don't want to pray for Palestine because some of God's people are there as well. All the nations of the earth, Jew and Gentile alike, will be saved. This is not a political statement. I'm just talking as a Christian. You can come to your own political conclusions about what we should and shouldn't do as a nation, but as a Christian, as you pray and as you seek to advance the gospel, you should be targeting both Jews and Gentiles and praying for the mercy of God to sweep over them all. God is patiently restraining his full judgment so that the children of God, the vessels of mercy, can be gathered in. So what shall we say then, Paul says, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. The fact that he didn't blow it all up is a testimony to his mercy. And he's been working out this plan, this global redemptive plan, just as he always has. And friends, one thing's certain when you come to Romans 9, you're presented with a view of God that reminds us all that we are not the center of the universe, God is. So then how should we respond? Four quick things. What do we do with this? Four quick things. Number one, Romans 9 should cause you to stand in awe of God. 
If you read Romans 9, you don't come away with a big view and an amazing understanding of the majesty and the greatness and the glory of God, then keep reading. It's a reminder that, that we're not the center of the universe, God is. That we're not the ruler of the universe, God is. That we're not the ones who order salvation, God is. He is worthy to be worshipped. He's not open to redefinition. This is the God of creation, the God of salvation, and the God that is worthy to be worshipped and praised because he works in this world despite our sin to bring vessels of mercy to himself to his glory. Number two, Romans 9 helps keep us amazed at our own salvation. Sure, Romans chapter 9 teaches us about the sovereignty of God in election, but as R.C. Sproul once said, it screams not so much sovereignty, but unfathomable grace and mercy. God's grace, friends, is truly amazing to think that God would take a corrupted, ruined clump of clay, only fit for the trash heap, and from it form vessels of mercy for his own glory is truly a testimony to the glorious grace and mercy of God. You should ask yourself regularly, am I amazed by grace? Based upon my own experience, my conclusion is is that most of us are not regularly amazed by grace. We live in a day and time where grace seems to be undermined. Because down deep, if you look deep enough, you come to the conclusion that somehow we believe that we deserve God's grace. If you find election as unfair, that's what you're believing. Somehow we we deserve God's grace. Why would he withhold it from some? That's not fair. They deserve it. Oh, wait a minute. We live in an entitlement culture where we think we have the right to go to heaven. That's what we believe. We live in a day and time where we think we have every right to go to heaven. When the reality is, is that we are entitled only to one place, and that is eternal separation from God. And it's only by the mercy and the grace of God that he plucks you out of that corrupted clay, and he forms you by giving you a new heart, and he makes you a trophy of his grace. And he does that, friends, for people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Are you amazed by grace? You should ask yourself, am I amazed that God saved me? Are you? I mean, sometimes I'm, 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 I feel that right there as I'm singing. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? And can it be? That, that's, what the, that's what John Wesley, a Methodist, said in the... In, in the hymn, Charles Wesley, sorry, not John Wesley, one of the Wesleys. And can it be? That, that's what we should be saying all day long and all week long. And can it be that you would save me, God, that you would make me a vessel of your mercy when I deserve to be a vessel of wrath? And can it be, amazing grace indeed, that God would save me? Romans 9 screams that. That you should be amazed that God did not leave you in your sin and harden you and seal the fate that you deserved and wanted. 
but that he opened your eyes and he caused the light to shine in your eyes and in your heart where you saw Jesus as glorious and mighty and powerful and the Savior that you wanted for all that he is and all that he's done and you came running to him in faith and repentance. Friend, you did not do that. God did it. God's grace is what we should point to. Number three, Romans 9 makes us hopeful for the hardest of sinners. And when you think about friends or family members or acquaintances that seem so entrenched in their depravity and sin, and you begin to think things like, why is it even, uh, uh, there's no hope for this person. If it's up to the human will, then there is no hope, friend. But there's hope in sovereign grace. If there's hope for the hardest of sinners, it is the sovereign grace of God. It is Romans 9 type mercy and type grace that we see that is hope for the world. And so, sometimes people say, well, if these things are true, why should we pray? Why should we evangelize? Why should we send missionaries? All those those arguments that we hear so often, they miss the point. If it's self-determining faith that accomplishes salvation, then why should you pray? What are you praying for if it's up to them? Why are you praying to God if it's self-determining faith that saves? No, it's because God must do a work that we pray, that we beg for his mercy and his grace to come upon people's lives. So it makes us hopeful for the hardest of sinners because God can awaken the hardest of sinners to salvation. Romans 9, number 4, leads us to action. Again, Why do we pray? Why do we evangelize? Why do we go to the ends of the earth? We pray, we evangelize, and we go to the ends of the earth because God is sovereign and there is great hope for success. If God were not sovereign, you look at the world. You look at the world. If God were not sovereign, who wants in on the mission? I'm not going to go to the hard places. I'm not going to talk to difficult people. If God is not sovereign, then then we're in trouble. But the fact that God is sovereign, the fact that Romans 9 salvation is true gives us great confidence and hope to go to the ends of the earth because he tells us he's saving people from all the ends of the earth. So go get them. Go get them. So brothers and sisters, we give ourselves to his cause so that his power and his glory are known throughout the ends of the earth. Is God just? Absolutely. He's extending his mercy. He's showing his purposes. He's taught us about his freedom. And he is patient. He is patiently enduring so that the vessels of mercy can be saved. And praise God. Praise God that he made us vessels of mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and As we consider these deep truths, Father, at the very least, we want to be found thankful for grace, for mercy, for your love and compassion. Father, these things often trip us up and often make our brains hurt. But at the end of the day, Lord, we want to be found responding to your favor 
and to your kindness and your compassion. Lord, what is on display in these verses is not the, a God who is angry and not a God who is just thrashing the world around, but Lord, this is a, a testimony to the compassionate grace that you truly have. And Father, you are extending that grace far and wide. Father, would you help us to be amazed by that? Would you help us to be stewards of that? Lord, continue to work these truths in our hearts that we would be humbled and that we would be found quick to give you praise and glory for who you are and the way that you work in this world. Father, would you have mercy upon us and would you continue to use us as instruments of your grace to a lost and broken world that they too may hear the truth and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.